In this final edition of Technometria on IT Conversations, I speak with Doug Kay, its founder and leader. We talk about IT Conversations' start, its history, the business and organizational models that made it work, and the final disposition of the thousands of shows that have been done over the years. Our thanks to all of you who have listened and contributed to his success. From IT Conversations. Hey, Doug, how are you? I'm good, Phil. How are you? Good. So um, I told my partner, Steve, that I was getting ready to do the final IT Conversations podcast of all time. That's it. <laughs> the very last one. Yeah. I guess we get that privilege, huh? Right. I thought that maybe we could start with just a few of the facts, just things like, uh, you know, how, how did you think, let's start IT Conversations? What was the, what brought you to that point? Uh, it was an accident, as, as all good ideas usually are. I was writing a book uh, which, uh, w- on which you were one of the, uh, uh, the readers, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. And um, it was on a subject that I didn't know a lot about, so I was recording my interviews with the experts via phone. This was the web services book, right? Web services book, yep. right. And um, I was just recording so I didn't, didn't have to take notes. And after I got through recording a number of these, I realized that I'd been talking to people who knew much more about the topic than I would ever know. So I called some of them back and asked them if I could re-record those interviews or use the recordings I already had and post them on the internet. So all I did in the beginning was simply post MP3 recorded interviews about web services online, and they were simply standalone MP3 files. There was no RSS for them at that point. But that was the beginning, and I decided to package them as conversations, and hence I called them IT conversations. And then, of course, I went beyond that, uh, the book itself, and started recording interviews on a variety of other IT topics. Well, I think that's one of the uh, the little secrets of podcasting, is it does give you an opportunity to talk to experts who might not otherwise talk to you just if you just call them up. Uh, Scott Lemon, who, you know, has been doing the Technometria series with me, remarked just the other day, he says, I'm really sorry we're not doing that anymore because I've got several people I really would like to talk to about something and just, you know, find out what they're thinking. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the, the key, though, is that, that he can do that. Yep. You, know, yeah. you, don't need, you don't need IT conversations to do that any longer. Anyway, so that was the, the, basics, the basis, the genesis of it all. It was really an accident of me simply recording interviews for my own purposes. I don't know when this was in the overall trajectory of the idea, but I remember we were at a thing called CD Expo down in Las Vegas. Right. And you were telling me about podcasting and, and what your plans were. And I, I remember thinking, well, that's kind of an interesting idea to uh, to record audio and put it up on the Internet. Uh, you know, and like you say, the RSS feed is really what came to be associated with what people called podcasting. That's right. You know, I had recorded a number of interviews on a variety of topics and put them on my blog, essentially, as attachments to blog posts. And then, I forget what year it was, but Dave Weiner, who's, you know, the father of RSS, created the, uh, I forget the actual tag, but it's uh, the attachment, essentially, the the way to, or enclosure tag, that's what it was. So the enclosure element included the ability to specify a URL to an MP3 file. And thus was born podcasting. And Dave posted uh, the very first podcast, which was a Chris Lydon show. And IT Conversations was born as a podcast the very next day. We were the second podcast ever 
the name podcasting didn't exist yet. That hadn't been invented. But um, Dave put up the first RSS feed with an MP3 in it, and I put up the second. And now, of course, enclosures are used for all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, we don't even think about them being special. That's right. I mean, and most people, of course, aren't even aware of the syntax in the, the, you know, the middle of all the XML and all that. Let me uh, go a little bit in historical or chronological order, as it were. Eventually, you built the IT Conversation site. And I think one of the unusual or maybe interesting features of it was uh, the business model behind it. Yeah, there wasn't any. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, you know, at that point, I was transitioning somewhere between being a consultant and being more or less retired. Mm -hmm. And... um you know, we were, I was putting stuff up there and I was able to talk some people into giving me free bandwidth and I had essentially free hosting. So there was no expense in doing this. Uh, it was all free. But the business model changed when a number, well, it was, it was a fascinating transformation, again, entirely by accident. I got a lot of email and a lot of feedback. The word spread quite a bit. I think part of it was that we started recording some of the O'Reilly conferences. Um, and posting them online, and we can talk about that if you like. But mm. I started getting feedback, and the feedback was, I mean, some of it was remarkable. Some of it was, you've changed my life, you know, which is, you know, in many cases, something about, you know, getting someone to go to the gym more often because they had something to listen to, mm -hmm. or someone in some part of the world uh, who could get access to this stuff that well, that person never could before, or perhaps they were blind and uh, now could participate in these events. Yeah. Um, but it also included people who said, you know, how can I contribute? How can I send money? How can I help? I want to be involved. And it was just nothing I'd ever thought of before. And so thus was born a business model. Which was, explain it a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously well familiar with it, but I don't know that readers, I mean, listeners, sorry, uh, necessarily have paid that much attention to how all of this happens because it's not free. That's right. One of the things we did was we kept the expenses extremely low. So our annual operating budget at its peak was only about $35,000 a year. We have no salaries per se. We have no facilities. We have no letterhead. We don't own a fax machine or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And it started with these people who wanted to send money. So what we did was put up a tip jar <laughs> um, and we allowed people to contribute whatever they felt like. Mm -hmm. And we also uh, put together a system where other people could participate. And we had two groups of people. We had audio engineers who would do the post-production audio. And we had web editors who would write the web pages that accompanied each program. And we very simply, at the end of the month, uh, divided the tip jar by the number of shows and the participants. And uh, I just sent the money via PayPal out to the people who worked on the shows. If you did two shows, you got twice as much as person who did one show. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, that's really, that was the business model. Like I said, we had no, uh, no expenses per se, other than the people who worked on the show. Now then it got a little more complex. You know, we did get into more complex hosting and so forth. And then we started to take corporate contributions as well. And at that point we used our corporate contributions to fund the infrastructure of the system uh, and the tip jar still went to the people. And then over time, we realized since there were so many fluctuations um, month to month in the donations that we received or the corporate sponsorships we received that we just decided to pay the team on a fixed basis. So we, we started out calling it beer money. 
Uh, we raised it a few dollars, and then we called it wine money because it was a little more. <laughs> and um, uh, it was, you know, it was very little money. I mean, people people got paid between fifteen and twenty five dollars to work on a show. So, yeah, you know, at the end of a month, you know, our expenses came to that to you know fifteen hundred dollars a month or so was what we what we paid the team. So I think it's a, a really interesting system because it really does reflect a a different way of creating an organization as opposed to, you know, thinking you have to hire everybody. I mean, essentially you were, you were paying, um, piecework and you were using tools of networking, PayPal, the network itself, you know, web pages, et cetera, to actually coordinate the work and schedule the work. So, so there are two aspects that I think would be interesting for you to comment on there. One is, the actual scheduling of the work itself, building the system which allowed a team of volunteers from literally all over the world to cooperate. And then the second thing that I think is interesting about it is how do you control quality in that kind of a situation? Yeah, good questions. You know, when someone looks back 20 years from now at the Conversations Network, hopefully the audio recordings will still be available and people will understand what they are. What will probably get lost is actually more important, and that is the organization, as you mentioned, that we were able to develop a worldwide, totally distributed organization of which there were, you know, as many as 250 different people who've participated over the years who produced and published these programs. Technologically, it was done as a customized content management system that I wrote that included a Mm -hmm. whole workflow component. There is a page we call the assignment page where New programs were posted and people in various disciplines could come and sign up to work on the show. But behind it was also the structure of the team. Uh, As the team grew, we decided to, we needed a senior audio engineer. Paul Fagiani filled that role from the very Mm -hmm. beginning. Uh, We also needed a senior web editor. Uh, Darusha Wayne was the first one. We had a number of others. And for the last couple of years, it's been Joel Cherney who's been doing all that work. And then within each channel, we had an executive producer. I handed off IT Conversations to you quite a long time ago. Yeah, 2006, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. And, um, you know, for our other channels, Social Innovation Conversations, uh, Bernadette Clavier took on that role. Uh, Steve Williams was the executive producer of Bay Kai and so forth. So there was a horizontal hierarchy, I guess you'd call it, which is discipline-based, audio versus mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Uh, web editing, and then there was a vertical component for each channel. It worked really well. You know, I have to, you know, injecting myself a little bit in an interview as someone who was involved in that process. Uh, You know, as an executive producer, my role was varied throughout the years, but essentially I was, you know, looking at the assignment page every day, uh, you know, what show should I publish next, et cetera. And, you know, and as a workflow system, it provided me with a, you know, pretty, easy way to watch shows, to see what I should publish, and to manage the content that was on my particular channel. Yeah, and it grew over time. I mean, we had we got a lot of feedback from the team as to what features needed to be on that assignment page, and I think it became more useful over time. We had interesting challenges along the way. I remember one was when um, someone was a series producer for a given series, they might try and game the system and get their shows <laughs> produced ahead of somebody else's. So we yeah. had we had to introduce fairness into the assignment page. That was a fun one to try and pull off just algorithmically. And I should mention that we did add the concept of a series producer as well. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to pull that out because that was a critical role in the vertical component was, you know, creating each 
per each series because the the individual web or audio editors weren't assigned to a series or even a channel, as you mentioned. They were free to roam between them. And so the series producer really provided that continuity and the the first line of quality control for any given uh, series. Right. I mean, part of it was the idea that each person had relatively little work to do. This was not a full-time job for anyone. You know, you were able to mm-hmm. do it in your spare time. Uh, most of the audio engineers and web editors and even series producers can do this as a real background activity. The exceptions were probably Paul and Joel. I think they put more time into it primarily because uh, another thing we haven't mentioned yet is the apprenticeship programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when you're talking about quality, one of the things we did early on, and we did it with a few mistakes, a little bit of trial and error, was try and figure out how to bring in new people, uh, train them in our system, in our workflow, and yet maintain the quality. And this was a problem for us because, you know, in the beginning and middle stages of the evolution of the uh, Conversations Network, we had a huge turnover. We had as much as a 25% turnover every single month. And rather than, you know, pull our hair out over this, we said, all right, this is the way it's going to be because of the type of thing we do. Let's develop a system that embraces that and works within the confines of a turnover that's that high. So we created an apprenticeship program uh, where, let's take audio, for example, a person would come in, uh, they'd be asked to um, uh, just answer a short questionnaire, they would be asked to take a file that everybody else had worked on and do some post-production on this file that had some challenges in it and submit it to Paul. And Paul could tell pretty quickly whether the person had any skills or not. And, and Paul's a hard grader. Yeah. Yeah. Paul's tough, which is, which is again, <laughs> what you that, need. That's part of the quality. That, that's it. Absolutely. And, um, and cause Paul also knew that if the thing didn't work, he'd be investing, you know, if the guy wasn't any good, Paul would be investing a lot of time in uh, getting this person up to speed on our system. Mm-hmm. So, Assuming they got past Paul at that stage, uh, then they would become an apprentice. And an, an apprentice would work on two programs under the tutelage of a journeyman who would be, you know, one of our current uh, team members. And uh, if the person was successful after two programs, then they themselves would become a journeyman. Uh, and during the apprenticeship, the, um, the apprentice got the credit for the work that they did, but the journeyman was the one who received the, the wine money. So it was a good system for everybody, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that one of the things, you know, we just touched on, uh, you know, say, by saying Paul's a tough grader is um, it's not just Paul. I don't put myself in this mix because I'm actually not as picky as I should be most times. But one of the things that I think set uh, IT conversations and then conversations network as a whole apart is your insistence. And, you know, that followed by both Paul and Joel uh, and other um, you know, senior editors like Darusha, that even though this was a shoestring operation in terms of budget, that quality was important, that we wanted to produce, you know, audio programs, which were of the highest audio quality, not you know, something that matched the budget. Yeah. I mean, we adopted the phrase broadcast quality as our, as our standard there. And although that was never explicit what that meant, I think people had a pretty good idea what it was. For example, if we had an audio recording that was, you know, had a lot of noise, some buzz, distortion, then it just didn't make the cut. 
Mm-hmm. And that was something we always played with, you know, the the relationship of the value of the content to the quality. You know, one of my, my examples always was, you know, if, if the only recording we had of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech was sort of staticky and scratchy, we would use it. You know, it was an important mm-hmm. speech. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, most of what we published on the Conversations Network wasn't that important compared to that <laughs> speech. And... uh so we could be pretty fussy about that quality. And we, you know, we felt that, you know, anything we produced should be suitable for broadcast radio, for example. Yeah. Same with the web content, you know, uh, you know, spelling matters, grammar matters. And luckily, Darusha set a high bar in the very beginning. Uh, she herself's a writer and an editor and um, uh, she was picky. And so all of our subsequent senior editors were just as picky as well. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that... Um you know, along with the rest of the quality issues, there were, um, you know, I, I don't know, maybe maybe you have these written down somewhere, but I kind of learned them on the fly and uh, and just internalized them. But little, you know, design guidelines, you know, kind of the or the network style, as it were, you know, things like how the pictures would look, you know, where direction the face was turned, you know, no two line headlines. I mean, just, you know, little things like that, that stylistically added up to a site which hung together pretty well. And Darusha actually developed our first style guide, and it was a written document that everybody you know could refer to. So yeah. that was a tremendous help. Yeah. Well, so one of the big changes, or, or I guess uh, evolutions uh, at IT conversations, was when you introduced uh, conferences. I mean, there were, I, I remember some of the early conferences. The things I used to love were things like O'Reilly eTech and then uh, you know PopTech got its start on IT conversations. Of course, now they're all, they, they, they host their own. Um, but uh, how did that come about that, that you, you know, got out of just doing your own interviews and said, you know, we ought to publish this other content too? Well, O'Reilly was doing their annual Emerging Technology or eTech conference. And I was going to go there to record the sessions because nobody was actually recording them. The whole, let me back up and say that the whole concept here of everything that we did was this, that, you know, every day there are hundreds of presentations given by brilliant people that simply evaporate because no one's recording them. No one's recording, you know, the Nobel laureates who speak every day. Mm-hmm. At least mm-hmm. this is what, this was the case 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah. No one was recording them. Uh, no one was preserving them and no one was making them available to the world for free. And so that was our mission that when we went, we created the nonprofit that was the official mission, which is to record, preserve, and distribute for free. So I was in technology. It was the obvious place to start. I went to O'Reilly conferences with my my little disc recorder, Sony Disc Discman, I think mm-hmm. they were called. And I would drop one in each room and hook it up to the PA system and in between sessions run around and change discs. And then for this one e-com event, I can't remember which year it was, but I asked O'Reilly Media if we could do a live stream. And as far as I know, no one had ever done a live audio stream from an event. Certainly there was no video streaming. Mm-hmm. Event. Yeah. And we arranged, it was a complicated thing. I arranged for an ISDN line. We, we didn't have reliable internet. So I had an ISDN line put in the room. I was streaming over ISDN back to my studio here at home. Mm-hmm. My wife was actually monitoring <laughs> the system at home to make sure it didn't go down. Of course, it did go down from time to time. I slept down to San Diego with a lot of fancy audio gear. But we didn't promote it. Uh, O'Reilly was nervous. They didn't want to tell anybody about it. 
And this is pre-Twitter also. So it basically had to grow organically by people sitting in the audience mentioning on their blogs or through email that this was available live and that people could just listen in. It was just that easy. And, uh, you know, by the end of the three-day conference, whatever it was, you know, we had hundreds of simultaneous listeners and it was considered quite a success at that point. We went on to have a long relationship with O'Reilly Media. We didn't do much more live streaming. We can talk about live versus on-demand, but mm. we ended up doing on-demand audio for essentially all of their events for many, many years. Yeah, so talk about live for a minute because I think one of the things that's, well, not unique about IT conversation, but clearly distinctive is that it is just on demand. That's uh, IT conversations cut a niche for itself. You don't do the recording. The recordings have to exist. Uh, you, you put it on the web. You know, it's good quality. Come get it. That's right. And we, we did get out of the recording business. Uh, I can remember Scott Mace was one of our early producers also. And uh, one year Scott ran around with the uh, disc mm -hmm. recorders and yeah. he did the same thing that I did. Uh, but in terms of the live Live was the kind of thing that event producers really liked. They, they thought it was the most important thing to do. We finally dissuaded them from this for two reasons. One, obviously streaming live is a lot more complicated and a lot more expensive to do. At least it was back then. Now you can stream you know, video for free. Uh, not a problem with video. But the other thing we discovered was that the on-demand audience was almost always two orders of magnitude larger than the live audience. So if you had a, an audience of 200 people, you would likely get 20,000 people to listen to it afterwards. Mm. Yeah. And I'm not talking about live streaming. I'm talking about the in-person live audience. So if you had 200 people in the room, you would get 20,000 people who would listen to that event over the next six months. Yeah. And we were able to prove that to all the event producers we worked with. It depressed them a bit because they realized they were going to all this time, trouble, cost, and effort to basically address the 1% of the audience. <laughs> so <laughs> it sort of bothered them to some extent. Although, it's, although you could make an argument it's the 1% that cares the most since they got on a plane and flew there. Well, of course, the other thing that we had, we got tremendous pushback on was the fact that we were cannibalizing the in-person right, registrations, right. which was their revenue stream. That was twofold. One was the people who showed up, bought a ticket to sit there and listen to the sessions. The other was that business, if you remember it, maybe it still exists in some places, and that was the people who sold cassettes or CDs of the sessions right there at the conferences. Uh, we pretty much put them out of business. Yeah, I, I'd forgotten about that. That's right. I mean, that was a that was a revenue stream for those companies as well as for the event producers. But what we were finally able to convince people of most of the time, as you remember, you tried to help me on these these pitches to people, was that not only will this increase your audience by two orders of magnitude, which will give you tremendous buzz, mm -hmm. lock in some people who will show up at next year's event and that that is you know, worth more than any small amount of revenue you might lose. Yeah. And, and you know, I think there's a, a third aspect, which is just that you create a, a permanent record, which then other people can link to, you know, I, th I don't see it as much now, but there used to be, you know, John Udell was always big on, you know, linking to particular segments of shows, he even had a tool for doing that, which was, you know, finding the segment and then creating the link to it. And, you know, there, there was some, there was some real, 
buzz around. I, I want to write about what this guy spoke about. And mm-hmm. the only way I can do that is if there's a recording of it somewhere. That's right. Uh, yeah, I remember John and I, you know, we went back and forth. We had two different syntaxes for how to uh, uh, specify the idea of a clip, the, the, the yeah. sub-segment of an MP3 file. And uh, we enjoyed working on that. We ended up with a, a pretty good system for it. Yeah. Eventually, a lot of these shows, I guess you could say, saw the light because most of them do this themselves. And what's interesting is, that in a way, video, I think, was part of what caused that to happen, you know, because it's not the audio became a lot easier to stream. So video became a lot easier to stream and they just jumped right to video. Yeah. And that's something that's sort of surprising in, in one sense. And that is partially, I guess, mostly because of YouTube. On-demand video is essentially free. If you have a video recording and you want to put it somewhere so everyone can see it, you put it on YouTube. You don't pay a dime and everybody could see it. This is still not the case in audio. Yeah. In fact, when people want to put audio online, what they do is they put some slideshow to it or something, right? I mean, I'm even thinking of like like when you search for a song title, you'll often find YouTube of the song with just some slide showing. I mean, the only the only truly free audio that I know of other than a scheme like that is, you know, the Internet Archive where mm-hmm. something worthwhile, you can certainly host your audio there. Uh, but I think, you know, that comes from YouTube. It comes from Google's vision that video would ultimately support an advertising model, whereas audio would probably not. And uh, so that's, you know, that's how we got to video. And, you know, also I think event producers think visually. You talked about mm-hmm. Optech was another event uh, that we did for a few years. We also put in an ISDN in the Opera House in uh, Camden, Maine. And uh, did live streaming from there over ISDN to the uh, to back here at my studio, and then um, uh, it was an interesting story. What happened there was uh, after a few years of doing this, PopTech is sort of essentially like a TED conference for those who don't know it. Yeah, it's great content. It's yeah, it's marvelous stuff. And Yahoo got big into video. I think they bought you know, Broadcast.com or somebody. And so the Yahoo video group decided that they wanted to do live video. And, of course, we would do it very inexpensively with audio. But they ended up, I think, having to bring in a satellite truck and the whole, the whole big production to, to get this going. We tried to get from Yahoo the rights to do the audio, and we couldn't get it. And what happened was, you know, Yahoo came in, did the video. Nobody watched it, uh, and the recordings are now gone. So, you know, there, there are a few years in there where PopTech is essentially no record of what they did. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, speaking of audio, um, let's talk for a minute about spoken word because this was a experiment that you tried. Um, it wasn't about archiving audio per se. It was about indexing it, uh, making it available to people. You know, when we got started, we were the only ones doing what we did. And part of that mission was to make it easier for people to do it, people to record and do post-production and uh, publication of audio. And over time, we were successful in that it became common. Many people created their own podcast. Maybe many people recorded events. Um, many broadcast radio programs produced RSS feeds and so forth. So the other mission was to help people find and share spoken word content, audio and video. 
So I created another site called spokenword.org, which had nothing to do with our content per se. It was, it is until you know, at this moment, it still exists. It's a metadata directory. So you can think of it as a search engine for spoken word content. Uh, and it's, it works in an interesting model also in that people who join the site, it's free. Uh, people who join the site submit typically RSS feeds of podcasts that they discover that they like. And the engine ingests all the shows on those RSS feeds. It then follows those feeds and populates the database automatically. And from RSS, we get a fair amount of metadata. We get a title. We get a description. And because of iTunes, we get a fairly standardized set of keywords that iTunes uses for categories. Mm-hmm. That allows us to present a constantly refreshing homepage that shows new programs in each category, uh, audio and video. And then we added features to spokenword.org to allow people to create their own subscriptions or channels. So rather than go into your RSS aggregator or iTunes and say, I want to subscribe to these 10 podcasts, you would simply subscribe to your feed on spokenword.org And that feed would be populated from the shows that we found from all the podcasts that you were interested in. Yeah. So it, it, you know, as you're talking, one of the things I was thinking is, uh, you know, I use a um, podcatcher, if that's a term people use anymore, called uh, Downcast, uh, which is much better, by the way, if you like to listen to spoken audio, much better than listening to it in iTunes. Uh, But it strikes me that something like a, uh, you know, Downcast coupled with spoken word would be pretty powerful. And I think that's the kind of setup people use quite a bit. Yeah. You know, I do. I mean, I subscribe just to my feed. In fact, you know, we're going to shut down spokenword.org in the next couple of weeks. And one of my things on the to-do list is to make sure I, you know, replace that with the old style of recording to those things individually. Yeah. Well, so one question I had for you that's maybe a little bit uh, speculative is, you know, you think about what's going on with journalism today. You know, lots of newspapers having trouble financially, et cetera. You know, and, and I think people naturally go to thinking of something like blogs as, as a replacement. But I think we've all kind of discovered that blogs aren't necessarily a good replacement for for journalism and, and news, not, not at least not completely. And, you know, the question I had was, is there room for a model like how Conversations Network worked with essentially uh, low low budget but high quality expectations and you know distributed organization to create high quality uh, news i hope there is what i fear is that that will be the best that's out there mm-hmm. it conversations had essentially no editorial function you know other than just you know is this thing of good quality i look at what else is out there you know, in media. And the the closest commercial thing to what you describe is probably Huffington Post. Mm-hmm. It's a, a for-profit organization that, you know, gives the impression of being original, but they're actually aggregating news information that comes from, comes from other places. And, you know, they're subject to a fair amount of criticism for that because, you know, they don't necessarily make it really clear what they do. But, the problem is that good journalism, per se, costs money. And that's always going to be the case. By definition, you won't have a professional journalist working for free mm, or yeah. fine money. So 
this is what I think we're up against because, you know, by going to citizen journalism, we have we're going to reduce the costs of entry and the actual cost of production of, of journalism, but we haven't, we haven't really improved the quality. Mm-hmm. And we've actually challenged the high quality news producers um, financially. So my guess is that, that this will work itself out because there will be a market for quality journalism, but I think it's going to take, uh, you know, maybe another decade. Um, we're just, we're just working our way through all this stuff. So, yeah, I, I think maybe one one difference there as you're talking is, uh, you know, we didn't do or IT conversations, conversations network more more generally, didn't do content creation at least not as a network function. I mean, I had a podcast and other people had podcasts through the years, but they weren't part of the network per se. There was no compensation there. It was more or less you know whatever I was willing to do to make my podcast um, good, and and it wasn't you know, professional quality. I always listen to things like the Diane Ream show or, or something like Radio West, which is a great talk show out of KUER here that's syndicated over public radio international. And, you know, the, the quality of production is similar in terms of, you know, audio quality, et cetera. But, you know, the, just having people who can go out and source something and, you know, you're spending all of your time thinking, okay, what am I going to ask this person? What's the right thing? Reading the book, for example. I mean, you know, that's a full-time job to do that, especially if you're going to do it uh, day in and day out. That's right. I mean, on, you know, on cable television, a lot of the hosts don't even read the books. They have a producer, right? low-income producer who reads that. The other example, of course, is Wikipedia. And I think Wikipedia is struggling a bit. I mean, it's an unbelievable resource that we have. I'd be in trouble without Wikipedia. Yeah, I would too. But, you know, they're showing growing pains as well. And I think, um, you know, I think they'll work that out. Hopefully, if, you know, if their board keeps it together, they'll be okay. But it's because a lot of these things, you know, lose their intrigue after a while. When, when Mickey, Wiki, Mickey, when Wikipedia went mainstream, which it is today, mm-hmm. It's just not as cool to be a Wikipedia editor as it used to be. It used to be such an unusual and exotic thing. So I don't think that they attract people the same way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They also, because they're so popular, attract people who are trying to abuse their system. Right. And, you know, that's become, that hasn't become easier for them. That's become harder over the years. So hopefully they'll keep that all together because that's a tremendous resource. But it's another example of this sort of, crowdfunded, crowdsourced uh, media outlet. So as we wrap up, let's talk about IT conversations future and, and such as it is conversations network future. And, and, you know, what, what made you decide that it was time to, you know, call an end to this experiment and what's going to happen from here on out? I think a couple of things have happened. The most important thing is that we were successful. We achieved our goal of, making it easier for the world to record, archive, and distribute content. Uh, so much so with tools like the Levelator that we, we released that it's relatively simple and relatively common for people to do this all over the world. That means there's less of a need for the function that we provided because, you know, what we used to do, you and I together would approach tech conferences and say, you know, if you'll just record your content, uh, we'll make sure we take care of the rest of it. Right, right. So we, we were successful. I think because of that, there are so many podcasts out there. And as well, many of these events now realize that they don't need the Conversations Network. They can 
post their own audio and video. They can control the look and feel of the, the websites that that's up on, and they can control the branding and the messaging. And some of them, you know, insist on charging for it, and they can do that. That's one thing. So along with that, because we were successful, we started to lose our content sources. Fewer and fewer of our partners decided that they really needed us. And, you know, there wasn't much point in us going out and beating the bushes for more conferences because the message we could deliver to them really was, you can do this yourself. So along with all of this, the listenership went flat and then started to taper off. So, you know, I look at the stats every month. The traffic was starting to go down. The membership and donations to the tip jar started to go down. And it just seemed to me that the the trend was clear. The way this was heading was clear. Rather than wait till the thing hit bottom, why not fulfill the last part of our mission, which was to make sure that we could preserve this content forever and make sure it was available for free. Yeah. So with a with still a lot of money in the bank, uh, I decided that this was the time. And so what we've done is uh, we're in the process of assigning our assets to other organizations. The Social Innovation Conversations Channel uh, will now be taken over by the Center for Social Innovation at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Those are the partners who did most of the work on that channel anyway. IT Conversations is going to be archived at the Internet Archive. Uh, where they will uh, very soon have all the audio programs. And then over the next few months, we're going to be migrating all the web pages. Uh, we believe that uh, we're going to be able to preserve all the URLs for for a long time, if not forever. That's great. So that all the links to these shows, which is very important, as you pointed out earlier, will continue to work. Spokenword.org will be closed at the end of December. The Conversations Network's web pages, the rest of them will remain online for as long as we can keep them alive. That's great. Well, Doug, I have to say, uh, you know, as we close that uh, I think what you built was awesome. It was uh, obviously a big part of my life because I was the executive producer. But even before that, it filled a niche for me. And that's why I was interested in getting involved is because I saw it as something which helped me. And, and I wanted to, to be able to do that same thing for other people. So um, for me, thank you very much. And thank you, Phil, because if you had not been willing to step in as executive producer, I honestly believe IT conversations would have died. Uh, and the reason is that by doing that, you allowed me to focus on the network at large. It was a lot of fun. You know, I, I still sometimes will be standing at a conference talking in a line or something and somebody will turn around and go, I know your voice. You know, they've never met me before, but they say, you're Phil Winley, aren't you? Because <laughs> they recognize my voice. And so, you know, it's, it's been a lot of fun. As, and I can remember the same thing when I was doing, uh, when I was running the show there too, it was, you'd be at a conference and the heads would just swivel around and it was a, uh, an odd bit of fame that I think we enjoyed for a while. Yeah. Well, Doug, I think from both of us and I think from everybody on the Conversations Network staff, uh, we can say thank you to all the listeners as well. Absolutely. Because, um, if it hadn't been for those people who wrote to me and told me that this was something that mattered to them, uh, it never would have stayed alive. Well, good. I think we'll not only wrap up the show, but wrap up the network. So I'll talk to you next time. This is the last show of all time. Thanks a lot, Phil. Bye. You've been listening to Technometria. For more of Technometria, please visit my weblog at www.windley.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Paul Figiani. Our website editor was... Joel Cherney. 
The series producer is Joel Cherney. My name is Phil Windley, and I hope you join me next time for another edition of Technometria on IT Conversations.